We are approaching the end of this first uh, section in the book of Romans. Uh, Next week we'll uh, continue in Romans 3 but that will start a a mini-series leading up to Easter where we'll be looking uh, in more depth at uh, the work of the cross. Where have we come so far? In Romans chapter 1, in the first first part, we saw uh, the Father's uh, big goal in all that he's doing and it is uh, to call people to belong to Jesus Christ. We saw that that's the the vision, the the big picture that we must always keep before us uh, in all that God is doing, all that he says to us is this goal that we will be in right relationship with him in right relationship with one another and to be caught up in the, uh, the plan and purpose that he has for all of creation. Then we looked at uh, the nature of the Gospel and the fact that uh, the Gospel is sensational, world-changing announcement of news and the Gospel can be bad news or it can be good news, depending on where you stand before God. If you receive it, it's good news. If you reject it, it's bad news. And so Paul uh, then moves in to, you could say, the bad news of the Gospel, uh, the reality of human sin and God's judgement upon sin. And that's what we've been uh, exploring over the last three weeks and we'll finish that off this morning as we look at the, uh, this part of chapter 3. We looked briefly last week at Romans 3.20 uh, where Paul is heading to in, in all of his talk about sin and the law. This point that the law was made was, was given to make us aware of our sin. And by making us aware of our sin, he's making us aware of our need for mercy. And that, that's received through faith, not works. And this is a point that Paul will bring out a number of times through this letter of Romans. For verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 5 verse 13, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 5 verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then 7 verse 7, Paul speaking from a, a very personal uh, perspective. If, I had, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. When we come face to face with God's law, it reveals our hearts, it reveals our sin in all of its sinfulness. We actually see Jesus speaking and and using the law in this way. Uh, Maybe 
surprisingly so, in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, uh, three chapters in Matthew, are essentially Jesus expounding the law uh, and, and bringing out its full uh, and, and complete meaning and, and its implications for anyone who would seek to live by God's law. Here's what he says. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in 5.48, You therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the uh, the paragon of obedience to the law. They've worked out to the finest detail how to obey every single aspect, every single command of the law. They were, they were spot on in terms of obeying the letter of the law, even if they completely missed the spirit of the law and they failed constantly to actually love their neighbour as themselves, and to love God from the heart. Nevertheless, if you took out the law and you held it up against the life and the practice of a Pharisee, uh, you could rarely find fault. Paul, uh, when he was reflecting on his own past as a Pharisee, said, As to the law, I was a Pharisee, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees who perfectly keep the letter of the law, then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Everyone generally would look at a Pharisee and say, there's no way that I'm that good. But even if that, was, if, if that wasn't enough, Jesus then calls us to the standard of perfection that we see in God the Father himself. You can't get more perfect than the Father. And so Jesus says that if if we are going to take the law seriously and as it's meant to be understood, not just in a token way, and that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, Take this law seriously. Don't just think that if I haven't physically killed someone, I haven't broken the law. He says, no, if you feel hatred in your heart or you call someone a fool, then you're guilty. He says, take the law seriously. We must see that it calls us to a level of perfection seen only in God himself. Now that's a a take maybe on the Sermon on the Mount that runs contrary to many popular views. Uh, Often it's treated as if the Sermon on the Mount is just a a new set of laws that Christians are to follow now that we no longer follow follow the old set of laws given in the Old Testament. But rather what Jesus is doing is he's showing his disciples, he's showing us the full extent of God's commands of the law's demands 
absolute perfection so that we will realise our absolute inability and instead turn to look in faith rather than uh, by works for what he's going to do. And he points to this at the very start of the sermon. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, when we look at the law and we despair, because the law hasn't been taken away, it's still there and it still has its demands of perfection, we despair because it's impossible for us to fulfil it. Jesus comes and he steps into our shoes and says, I have come to fulfil the law. I will do this on your behalf. I will live the life you are unable to live, the life depicted in my Father's perfect law. And I will die the death that you deserve, the penalty that's prescribed by my Father's perfect law. So as the law makes us aware of our sin, we then see the one who has fulfilled the law and we see that all of the demands and all of the condemnation of the law is taken away from us when we are in him. So this is where Paul is taking us. But he's got uh, one more thing to say before he gets to that statement in 3 verse 20. Someone might be saying to Paul at this stage, well that all sounds logical and right. Your argument flows well. Uh, you've, You've challenged the sinfulness of those out there in the world. You've challenged our own hypocrisy. Uh, You've shown us from uh, the reality of life that Gentiles seem to sometimes obey the law just like Jews, that both are are not able to perfectly keep the law. You've, You've shown us that in your logic. But Paul, what does God say about it? So far Paul's only mentioned two, two Bible passages uh, up to this point. And many of the Jews, the Jews were the people of the book who said we don't live on bread alone but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What gives you, Paul, the right to speak on behalf of God? What gives you the right to to claim to know what's in God's mind and what God says. So to drive his point home, Paul turns to the scriptures themselves. He knows that even if they haven't listened to a word that he's written so far, they'll stop and listen to what God has to say in the scriptures. So verses 11 down to 18, um, probably in your Bible you'll see there's lots of uh, little footnotes because uh, it's composed of a whole series of quotations from the Old Testament. Now there would be hundreds if not thousands of passages that Paul could quote 
if he wanted to illustrate the sinfulness of hum- human beings. Uh, thousands of passages throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and I was thinking, why? I wonder why he picked these ones in particular. Paul would have had a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He was a Pharisee. Uh, most likely, he would have had uh, most, if not all, of the Scriptures memorised especially the Psalms where most of these references come from. Why, why these ones? Was it just that these were the ones that first came to mind as he was writing them down? Even if that was the case, he was still being guided by the Holy Spirit to, to write these ones in particular. If we look at the passages that he quotes from, we actually see a progression. If we look at the context out of which they're taken in the Old Testament, and it's much like the progression that he's already followed in his argument in the previous two chapters. So I've got here the the Old Testament quotations and we can see I've, I've highlighted the parts of those passages that Paul has quoted in Romans 3, 10 to 18. So the first four come from four psalms, Psalm 14, 5, 140 and 10. The first three are entitled Psalms of David, so they are written from the perspective of King David, writing as king, as the, uh, the ruler and the defender of the people of Israel. And all four of these psalms are speaking of the enemies of Israel, the nations that surrounded Israel at the time who would constantly be attacking and trying to invade them. These are the Gentiles and the Gentile leaders, the rulers, the kings, the the generals who had no knowledge of God and no regard for God. So that's the beginning of what he says. Then he comes to Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, as we see at the beginning of the chapter, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, then it cannot save, or its ear dull, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. And then he goes on to talk about uh, wicked people, but it's in this context of actually, I'm now talking about you. This is one of those passages where God says to his own people, you have become just like the Gentiles. Uh, Why should I treat you any different to the other nations? Then he finishes off, with Psalm 36. This is a very interesting psalm. Apparently uh, the Hebrew in this psalm, and particularly in verse 1, is a little bit difficult to translate. Uh, And so different English versions will start this psalm uh, in slightly different ways. For example, the ESV says, Transgression speaks to the wicked, deep in his heart. I've changed it there, as as you'll uh, explain in a moment. 
So transgression speaks to the wicked in his heart. And the NIV puts it, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. And the Christian Standard Bible says, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked people. And the difficulty there is it seems like David is speaking of the wicked people out there but then he uses the, uh, the personal pronoun my heart. It would make sense to say the wickedness in their heart but he says no there's this, this oracle about wickedness and it's in my heart and the question is is, is it the oracle that's in my heart or is it the wickedness that's in my heart? It seems as if the issue here for David uh, is not just the external problem of wicked nations trying to oppress his people, but wickedness itself impacting his own heart. Whether it is that he's observing wickedness and it's, it's grieving his heart because he see, sees wickedness, or whether he's looking into his own heart and he sees wickedness, it's still an issue of his own heart. And then in verse 11, right at the end of the psalm, he says, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to arise. Notice he doesn't say, Let not the foot of arrogant people come upon me, but instead, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. It's not so much the fear of evil people destroying him as it is arrogance itself taking over him and stomping him down and causing him to end up in the same place as the evildoers end up where they're thrust down, unable to rise. In other words, death. So these passages are taking on a, following a progression from those wicked people out there to us wicked people in here to the wickedness that is in here, in me. So who needs to hear the Gospel? We've seen that it is those people out there the billions of people in this world who have yet to come to know God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. Those who live in ignorance and fear, who have yet to hear someone tell them the good news of the Gospel. If you've been watching ABC TV lately, you'll know that it's the 40th anniversary uh, this weekend of the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. And uh, I don't know how you respond to that when you sit and you, you see that stuff, this celebration of immorality. And uh, it can be very easy, can't it, for us to sit there and wag our finger and say, those wicked people out there doing those things and celebrating those things. How do we respond to that? Well, some say, well, we need to stand up as a church and make those kinds of things stop in our society. We need to get rid of them. 
and then we just come across as legalistic and moralising. Uh, others say, well, we need to love these people, let's just embrace them and let's celebrate with them. Obviously, that's not right as well, that's not really love. If we're concerned about truth and love, the only answer is the Gospel because the Gospel is the truth about God and his law and sin and judgment and it's the truth about what he has done in that supreme act of love in sending his son. So our solution isn't embrace it or wag our finger at it but to proclaim the Gospel to these people who are dearly loved by God even in the midst of all of their sin. So the Gospel is for those out there but it's also for us in here in the church. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the gospel when we're tempted with judgmentalism and hypocrisy, when we're tempted to wag the finger because the gospel reminds us, well actually, apart from the grace of God, there go us. We need to constantly hear the gospel so that it's the gospel that is shaping what we do and what we say and uh, what it looks like when we come together as the church. And we need to hear the gospel continually so that we can be ready as a church to repent when we need to, to to reform, to change as as we hear more of the Father's plan and his desire for us. But each one of us needs to hear the gospel. I need to hear the gospel. You need to hear the gospel. Because it's only the gospel that deals with the wickedness and the sin and the hypocrisy that's in my heart and your heart. The sin that will destroy us unless God destroys it through Jesus and his blood. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We heard Job's words earlier. For 37 chapters in the book of Job, Job and his friends have been talking. Job is suffering. There seems no apparent reason why he is suffering and the big question is why has God allowed this or why has God done this to me? And his friends have come and they're convinced that they know what Job's problem is and they say, well Job, here's your problem, here's how we can fix it. Job is convinced that his friends don't know what his problem is and so he says, no, you don't know what my problem is I don't actually really know what my problem is. Maybe my problem is with God and the fact that he is sovereign and he does what he pleases. But finally, after 37 chapters of men talking and women, there's Job's wife in there as well, finally God himself speaks and challenges Job to bring his defence before him. And all that Job can say is, I put my hand over my mouth. 
I cannot say another word. He now has to sit down and shut up and listen to what God has to say. Last week I touched on the fact that God doesn't leave us in the dark when it comes to his purposes. Jesus calls us friends because he he opens up and unfolds the heart of the Father to us. He tells us what he's, he's on about. God does tell us to sit down and shut up but so that he can speak to us and so that we can listen to what he has to say. We don't have to just throw our hands up in the air and uh, like a Muslim would say, Inshallah, just the will of God. I just resign myself to this impersonal sense of faith. God will do whatever he does. He's not actually interested in me and I just have to give in to that. God says, sit down, be quiet and listen to me because I am interested in you. I am going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you what I'm on about. I'm going to tell you what I have done and what I will continue to do for you. He opens up his heart. He shows us the depth and the riches of his goodness and his love. Here's what he says when he says, sit down and shut up and listen. He says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Next week, as we uh, come to what I think is the pivotal passage in the whole of the New Testament, the whole of the Bible. Uh, it starts with the most beautiful word in the whole Bible. But. God has been speaking to us and saying, this is the reality of who you are as a human race and who you are as a people, who you are as a person sin and death and judgment and condemnation but I have done something about it and that is uh, the good news. If you could sum up the gospel in one word it's, it's that it's but. But now God has acted and from here on it's all good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so greatly that you would tell us the truth about ourselves, the truth of our sin, the truth of your wrath upon us, the truth that there is no way to escape the reality of sin and death and judgment and the grave, except you have acted in your Son. And all of this has been with the aim of opening our eyes not, not to our sin but to your love displayed in Jesus Christ. And it's to him that we turn this morning. We turn in repentance and faith. We turn from our rebellion and our sin and our hard hearts 
and our refusal to, to know you and we turn to Jesus Christ and all that he has done to reconcile us to you. We turn to Jesus Christ who hung on that cross in our place, on our behalf, who fulfilled your law perfectly so that now through faith we might be in him and know the same relationship with you as Abba Father that he himself knows. Father, I pray for each person here this morning that we might know the truth of that deep in our hearts. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song. song about the cross and what it has done for us. I saw him standing there.